This is Friends of Europe. For more, go to friendsofeurope.org. Uh, we've got a great final panel this morning for you, already this afternoon, actually, as of one minute ago. Um, so without ado, uh, let me introduce our panelists. Uh, Minister José Alberto de Azerdo Lopes from uh, Portugal, uh, Minister of Defense, uh, in his past uh, an eminent law professor uh, and somebody who's done uh, a lot of thinking about the, the law of uh, uh, conflict uh, and has experience also uh, in, in, in state building and uh, uh, with the United Nations. Uh, Minister Frank Bakke Jensen from uh, Norway, Minister of Defense, uh, is uh, a member of the conservative Norwegian government. Uh, he's going to be hosting uh, in the coming weeks one of the biggest uh, exercises in, uh, for Na of NATO for decades, so we'll ask him a bit about that. Um, and, of course, he's uh, in the, uh, uh, the Nordic countries, which are working increasingly closely together uh, on defense, as we'll be hearing as well this morning, uh, but not in the European Union, so uh, we'll talk a little bit about how that works. Uh, Benedetta Berti is head of policy planning at NATO, uh, the Secretary General's private office. Before that, uh, she was an academic in the United States, a think tanker, uh, uh, with a, a specialization uh, in non-state actors, terrorism, uh, uh, if you want to call it that. Um, and uh, uh, therefore, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll ask her a bit about what NATO is doing, especially in the area of counterterrorism and uh, whether it's got uh, the right policy, whether it's the right place to be dealing with it, and, uh, uh, how uh, that, those threats are uh, likely to evolve in the 21st century. I, people say, is NATO ready for the 21st century? Of course, the 21st century began 18 years ago, so it's been coming a bit of an old-fashioned question which 20, 20th century people like me tend to ask. Another 20th century person, but a great one, uh, Jaap de Hofstreffer, former NATO Secretary General. Needs no introduction, especially since he was on a panel earlier this morning, uh, but is president now of the Dutch Advisory Council on International Affairs, amongst other things, a trustee of Friends of Europe. Um, and we'll be asking him, he, when he was in charge at NATO, um, Afghanistan was very much the, uh, uh, the flavor of the month, the, 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 the big story uh, of his time. Um, does he think that NATO has uh, exhausted its usefulness there? Uh, should it be looking uh, uh, to pull out and move, move uh, more priority elsewhere? And what, what, you know, what's been achieved and what still needs to be achieved? Let me just start by saying a couple of words, if I may. Um, first of all, about um, what you in the security community, uh, in this great debating security exercise, which Jamie mentioned earlier, told us uh, were your uh, uh, top do's for uh, the security community. They're a pretty uh, wide-ranging list, but some of them deal with the issues of radicalization, de-radicalization, policing. And interesting that three of them really sort of um, uh, uh, suggest civilian uh, inclusion responses uh, rather than uh, hard security responses uh, to the problem of radicalization and terrorism. Mobilize urban planning as a tool against exclusion that breeds radicalization is one. 
um, use criminal rehab rehabilitation programs as a model for reintegrating violent extremists back into societies. Another, and take the community policing approach as a benchmark practice. So these are all really about um, inclusion rather than about repression. Um, interesting. We'll ask Benedetta, I think, uh, particularly uh, to address a bit of that. Um, on the, um, we, we've heard a lot, so I, I'll try not to um, uh, duplicate uh, about the new technologies and their impact on, on, on conflict. Um, uh, ultimately, conflict is about chaps and not just about guns. So I, I think we'll talk more about strategy and about uh, uh, the politics of it uh, uh, on this panel uh, and a bit less about the technology. But create an international code of uh, conduct on military use and secure implications, uh, security implications of AI. I would just draw your attention to the Paris Peace Forum, which is taking place from the 11th, 11th to the 13th of November, where President Macron has invited heads of state and government in a bit of a sort of Paris climate conference type of exercise, uh, uh, hugged by or abused by uh, the NGO community, international organizations, and so on. And it's a big, rather fuzzy kind of exercise in, in underpinning, supporting multilateral governance, uh, which in itself is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but among the uh, initiatives that are, that are likely to be uh, 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 discussed there are um, internet security, uh, internet governance, uh, AI uh, governance, and so on. So those are clearly issues. And then there's a third ra range of issues around migration, so expanding regular migration corridors, um, uh, promoting an OSCE type of body for the Middle East that maybe might provide a framework for some kind of uh, peace and security arrangement in the Middle East uh, where there seems to be a bit of shortage of those two commodities. So those are some of the issues, um, you, including both nuclear and non-nuclear states to guide the process of tangible denuclearization is another um, tangible denuclearization, I ask you, as a journalist. You can tell I'm a journalist because I'm the only panelist not wearing a tie, except, except for Benedetta. <laughs> She's excused. Um, very finally, let me just say a couple of words. I've been writing a series of country reports for Friends of Europe, um, which I'm sure you've all read, um, about uh, European defence. Uh, last year I did France and Germany as a sort of warm-up act, um, this year um, has been a bit more, a bit steeper learning curve. Uh, I've done Britain, Brexit, and uh, European security and defense. Um, so referring back to our first panel this morning, one of my clear findings there is things are about to get a lot worse. And um, the sort of, I'm sure we're all going to find sensible arrangements, uh, which is what we're hearing all the time, um, is a bit scary to me because actually... Most of this seems to be in the hands of lawyers, and uh, lawyers don't give you sensible arrangements, they give you law. Um, and the law says that once you're a third country, for example, you have no access to the databases of things like uh, Europol, and you can't uh, have direct uh, input or trawl the bases and all the things that uh, the police need to do. Um, once you're a third country, you can't have access to the uh, European Defence Fund, and you can only join their projects if you're invited and, and so on. So there's a, a big risk, which I think hasn't been entirely taken on board 
um, of estrangement in the security and defense area, despite these good intentions. So I think I would call for people to start focusing on this now. Some things um, happen even if there is a, a withdrawal agreement and there isn't a hard Brexit. Some things start to get more difficult from the, the 30th of, uh, of March next year uh, after, after Britain leaves. For example, uh, the European arrest warrant. Britain will no longer be uh, uh, in, in, involved in it. Therefore, Britain, which is a net extraditor of people to its European partners, will no longer be extraditing people so easily, and we'll have to invent complicated ways of doing what we now do, uh, slow and complicated ways uh, of, of, of doing what we now do simply, unless, unless some solution can be found. Now, I don't think there is really a solution on the European arrest warrant because most countries, or several countries, don't extradite their uh, nationals to non-European Union countries, as the UK will become. But that's just one little example, and there are so many examples. Fundamentally, I would say, European Union needs to think on its side, just as the UK needs to think what, you know, what its interests in a close relationship with the EU is and what price it's prepared to pay, for example, in terms of accepting the jurisdiction uh, of the uh, Court of Justice over things like uh, data protection and so on. On the EU side, I don't yet discern there's enough thinking about what is our strategic interest in the relationship with the UK. Do we want the UK defence industry as part of the European defence industrial base or do we want it to sort of drift off across the Atlantic and be shut out? There are different interests there, maybe, but at least we ought to be debating this. I don't hear any debate of this. Uh, maybe I'm wrong. Um, and uh, likewise, um, you know, the, the, the legal status says Britain can't be uh, uh, a member of the, obviously, Political and Security Committee, can't have any say in deciding EU military operations, but it, as a third country, it may be invited to provide uh, forces for those. Well, you're talking about one of the two biggest military powers in Europe, uh, in, in uh, Western Europe, anyway. Um, so is that, you know, is, that, is that the last word? Is, uh, have the lawyers won? Or will there be some practical arrangement that allows uh, more consultation, more upstream uh, shaping of what missions are that will make it possible for British forces uh, to join European CSDP operations? At least I think that's worth thinking about and not just leaving to the lawyers. Voilà. Said my piece, overstayed my welcome. Um, José Alberto de Azevedo López. It's my last attempt to pronounce the Portuguese name after that. After that, I'm going to call you Joe, right? <laughs> um, you've uh, uh, made news recently by calling for a, a new NATO strategic doctrine. Um, what do you think, why do you think that's necessary, and what would it say that would be different? Why, what, 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 what new needs to be done? Uh, thank you for this question, and uh, I salute all the members of this panel, all of those who are in this room. And uh, I must thank also the, to be invited by friends of Europe to speak on these, I think, very important issues. 
when you choose a title, you give a message. When you speak about a new start for an old alliance, I always remember this say about the, uh, a new wine, uh, new wine in old bottles. And uh, sometimes when we speak about NATO, you have uh, 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 you have to avoid saying. Uh, an old wine in old bottles. And this was the problem with NATO, I think, when I arrived in office, because I discovered first that there was uh, one almost ex exclusive topic, the idea of an eastern flank that had became almost obsessive in the organization, and secondly, the idea of a new world, uh, an old organization almost on its 70s, uh, but uh, having some difficulties in understanding what were the challenges that we were already facing in the end of 2015. I think that uh, we are today much better. I think that we are today uh, more able to face new threats. I think that the organization, and when I speak about the organization, I try to avoid criticizing NATO because NATO is the result of the will, the common will of its members. So it's very easy to speak about NATO, as it is very easy to speak and to criticize the European Union as some kind of immaterial reality. But the truth is that uh, we have some challenges ahead uh, trying to renew this alliance. I think that we owe a lot uh, to NATO. Portugal has always said that independently of its positions, uh, in favor of a uh, new approach to defense issues in the European Union. We support it very strongly. But at the same time, we keep saying, and we will keep saying, because this is some common consensus in Portugal, that NATO is a fundamental part of our genetic code on security and defense. So this is a very clear position for my country in which I believe strongly. I said only once in my life, publicly that I supported a new strategic concept. And I'm paying for that <laughs> since then, <laughs> because I said this in Estonia. Uh, and in Estonia, I believed that no one would care. But someone cared, and suddenly we were discussing this in a, in a dinner in the, the NATO summit uh, when several of my colleagues looking at me very, we don't need a new strategic concept. So, <laughs> I, Nevertheless, I believe we need a new founding document. Uh, I don't care if you call it a new strategic concept, if you call it a new document, but I think that we have now too many bureaucratic documents that no one can really understand. I notice that in every meeting we have a new expression, a new purpose. Uh, uh, one year ago, it was uh, the, the objective was to be fit for purpose. And then I think that there is someone who invents a new purpose, and I think we must speak more plainly about what unites us. Uh, Portugal has insisted a lot on a real 360-degrees uh, approach. Uh, it was a slogan. It was an excellent act of marketing, of political marketing, but with no concrete application. And I think that the organization has made a lot since then. It was a slogan, uh, a slogan that could be reduced only to Russia, 
And I also remember that before uh, uh, the whale summit, no one knew really what could be invented to, to give a deliverable from this summit. And you know what occurred then. It was Crimea, it was Ukraine, and suddenly we had a new opponent that in some way united us and gave us a certain common sense to our security and defense approaches. I believe that at least, I am saying at least, the threats that we face from what is called the southern flank, these global and transnational approaches uh, to our security and defense. And I'm not speaking only about uh, Daesh or Al-Qaeda. I'm speaking about uh, different challenges, uh, less operational challenges that we are facing. And the main purpose of an organization is to be understood as being very useful to every member, and not only to certain members. Uh, because Portugal has always shown we are... We can speak about this because, to tell you the truth, it's very, it's very difficult to explain to my citizens the direct and immediate threat of Russia. There is Spain and Italy and France and Germany and Norway between us and Russia. And so even from a political approach, it's very difficult to explain this in a democracy because I strongly believe that you must explain democratically what you can do to your citizens. But we have always paid the price and we have always shown our solidarity with our contributions, huge contributions, all of them in the eastern part of the continent. Well, we talk more about what specifically you want to put into a, you would put into a new strategy. Uh, but Frank Baki Jensen, if I may, um, is NATO still trying to fight the last war? I mean, we're, we're talking about mobilizing uh, uh, forces on the, on the Eastern Front. You've got this big exercise coming up that's supposed to test interoperability and mobilization and so on. Um, you know, aren't, aren't we sort of fighting yesterday's conflict rather than tomorrow's? No, uh, we're preparing for peace. And... Uh, it's always uh, important to remember why we uh, created this alliance. We created this alliance to keep the peace and to prepare for peace. Uh, and uh, as an, uh, people from, an, an, uh, from uh, Norway, I'd like to remind you that that's, that's also why we created the European Union, to keep the peace. Um, I'm from uh, the, the, the land outside. We find an odd, odd way to our European cooperation, but, but I've always been a European. Though my, I'm, uh, I was born and raised uh, 2,652 kilometers from this seat, straight north. If I draw that line south, I will, uh, will reach uh, Marrakesh in Morocco, I think. <laughs> so um, some distance from, from Brussels, born in 1965, I've always been, in my mind, a, a European citizen. And I think we need to remember that. We have created some pictures. We have agreed on some values. And we have built some institutions to keep this mindset in Europe. Um, there are uh, 
signs of, of, of change. We see uh, Russian activities, military modernization that uh, concerns us. We see uh, Russian recent behavior um, have, uh, to try to reduce stability, security. Um, we see the effects of, of uh, changed Russian behavior in our neighborhood uh, as well, in the high north. And I fully can understand that it's uh, difficult to explain this in Portugal. Uh, it's difficult to explain this in, this in Norway too. And why is that? Well, uh, when I was 20 years, I served in the military. I was a border guard on the border between Norway and the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was something dark, big, scary something behind the border. My daughter is 23 years old now, born in 1995. For her, Russia, Russia is her most exciting neighboring country, filled with people. She has been, she has went to school with, with uh, children, with mother or father from Russia. She learned Russian in school. It's difficult for me to explain to my daughter that her friends, her exotic neighboring country is a threat. And that's why I, uh, I also tell that when people ask me, okay, is this, is this the new Cold War? No, I don't think so, because I grew up under, during the Cold War. And then Soviet was something big, dark, something. The new generation has the understanding that on each side of a border, there are people like us. And this is our most important tool to prepare for peace, to build so we're building uh, defense, of course, we're building the alliance, we're building institutions. This is to preserve the, the values and the idea of, of uh, Europe. That's why we're uh, gathered. Thank you. Thanks. L let me ask you, 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 you've still got a bit of time in the bank, so let me uh, ask you about uh, uh, Nordic Defense Cooperation. Uh, what we're seeing, I think, is, is a situation where countries that are not members of NATO are getting more and more closely tied in, in everything but Article 5. And, uh, uh, and how, is, you know, how do you see that? How does that go, go forward? Will they eventually join? Does it matter? Uh, well, this, is, this is, uh, an, uh, is a really good question. And, and, uh, and this is, in, in many ways, also a question of identity because Finland has built their identity since the Second World War, on being that neighboring country to the Soviet, to balance this one. Sweden has built their identity on being a neutral country, uh, not a part of NATO, and then they have built their, their many, many ways of their, their uh, former policy on this fact. But both Finland and Sweden used to uh, call themselves a neutral country, but they don't do anymore. They say they are a part of the Western defense cooperation outside the alliance. And that's a difference. So I think we will see a lot of good corporations. The, 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 the Nordic region, regional cooperation is very good. Five countries, three members of NATO, three others members of the EU, Denmark members of both. Uh, and we don't have especially problems cooperating on defense and security questions. We cooperate really close, and I think we will see that uh, in the future. This is more, and I think this is the important part, this is more uh, uh, the, the, that 
what I said, we, we choose the, val the values we, we uh, agree on, we choose the democratic uh, uh, institutions, we choose the freedom of speech, the right to vote, the right to, to uh, decide. And I think this is uh, also what we can see in the, the Nordic cooperation, and I think that's also why it's stronger when, it, uh, when it's needed, because yeah. it's more tensioned today. Thank you very much. Benedetta Berti, um, NATO's only uh, invocation so far of its Article 5 mutual defense guarantee came not after a, a, a state attack, mm -hmm. uh, but after a terrorist attack. Um, and uh, counterterrorism has ever since then been part of NATO's agenda. What's it doing now about it? And is NATO the right place to be doing it, or how do you, how do you interact with the EU and with other org uh, organizations? Well, well, thank you for the question. Uh, I would start by saying that there is much that over the past, uh, since, tw since 2001, since NATO has been uh, first invoking Article 5 in response to, to the attacks of 9-11, I think we have learned a great deal about stabilization, countering terrorism. Uh, and I think we've been learning a great deal in a very interesting, fast-paced, volatile, unstable, complex security environment. And in, and in a way, the way NATO has adapted to meet the challenges of counterterrorism mirrors a greater, I would say, broader set of adaptation measures that have really changed in a way that the, the Alliance thinks about defense and security. And I just wanted to reiterate uh, the point earlier raised that at least in the past few years we have confronted with a security environment in which we really do not have the luxury of choosing our challenges, in which we do not have other option but to think in a 360 degree way. Mm -hmm. So when, when I think about NATO's efforts in the counterterrorism uh, sphere, I would say, first of all, let's frame them as one of the many challenges we're adapting to. It's an organization that has reinvested, reinforced its collective defense aspect in a way that it's uh, incredibly significant. It's an organization that is meeting the challenges of uh, cyber defense, that is thinking very carefully about how do we face hybrid and other below Article 5, so to speak, challenges. And it's an organization that is thinking about um, how do we keep up with the exponential pace of technological innovation, just to make a few uh, examples. So counterterrorism in, in that sense is one of the challenges we're dealing with. It's a very important one. Uh, but I would phrase it as part of a broader set of challenges, threats, and just very uh, complex political dilemmas that have to do with uh, crisis of the state, crisis of governance, instability, internal conflict, and fragility around our neighborhood. And I think for instead of making a, a series of lists of things that we do, which I could do, but you could also read on the website, mm. I'll make, uh, I, I want to make three conceptual points about why I think that we have changed and adapted and we are indeed one of, one of the players in countering terrorism. One, I think, has to do with a conceptual reframing. And I don't want to get academic, but I would say in the last 20 years, we have come to terms with the fact that security and defense are interrelated in a way that we didn't really understand before. So today, I think, throughout the alliance, there is a deep understanding that collective defense and projecting stability are really not alternatives. So there is no preeminence between the two. The only way to, to meet our 
goal, which is to protect our citizens, is to do both at the same time. And I think that's very important in terms of how do we interlink defense and security in new ways. The second point would be about the how. And I think in the past 17 years and, uh, and plus, we have really learned uh, different things about what, what countering terrorism mean and what stabilization mean. And here I say the first lesson is about being conscious that the military and NATO with its toolkit has a very important role to play in terms of in denying terrorist organization territorial gains, for example, like in Afghanistan or in the global coalition against Daesh. Uh, the military tools have a great importance when it comes to training and capacity building. But, and I think that's a very important realization, at the same time, countering terrorism and promoting stabilization is much broader than that. So we have to be very realistic and understand that this is one piece of the puzzle. There are other pieces that other actors will do. There is economic recovery. There is political engagement. Uh, there is humanitarian relief. All of them are just as important, and that's why... NATO, yes, he has a role to play. Yes, of course, alone he will not provide all the tools and all the solutions. So I think that's why we work so well with our partners in the European Union, uh, with the United Nations, and that's why we understand that terrorism is not just military, um, a problem that you can sort out with military tools. The third main point, because I see my time is running, and it's very much related to the fact that we are one piece of the puzzle, is also we can't do it alone. And I think one of the main lessons, if we observe how we evolved our response to countering terrorism, is how much we are now investing in working with local actors, in building capacity through training of local forces, being in, uh, being in Iraq with the new training mission, being in Afghanistan with the, with the combat mission winding down and having an hour training mission, or being working with our partners in the MENA region from, uh, from Morocco to Tunisia, uh, to Egypt, uh, thinking about really the fact that uh, they, local actors, with their agency, with their understanding of local reality, are better positioned to deal with these challenges that we, we can facilitate, we can help, we can train. And, and this is very much a joint effort. And I think when you add together these three elements, understanding security and defense being interrelated and understanding we have to remain committed, understanding the role of the military, but also it's the fact that it's not enough, and understanding the importance of partnerships, I think this really shows adaptation and it puts us in a place where, yes, we can be relevant in fighting terrorism. Thank you very much. Yeah, you've given me uh, the, the lead-in by, by mentioning Afghanistan. Um, did NATO win? Has NATO won in Afghanistan? Um, I, think, I think on that question, Paul, the, the jury is still out. Um, but, but too early to tell, as Joanne Lowe was saying. Too early to tell, as John Lowe was already saying. Uh, I, I, would I would like to start, Paul, if you allow me. Yeah. Uh, when you discuss the future of, of NATO, the future of the alliance, uh, the elephant in this room, not to name a person, of course, is the future of Pax Americana. Yeah. Uh, I see uh, two strands of foreign policy in the United States of America, uh, one conducted by the president, uh, and when I then look at the NATO communique of the summit, I say there was a lot of brouhaha, uh, but when you, when you read the communique, uh, it, is, it is not that bad. Uh, when I read the communique, my conclusion would be, well, Pax Americana uh, might be ill, but it's certainly not terminally ill and certainly not dead. Uh, 
uh, when this goes on uh, and when the other line would take precedence in the, in the, in the United States foreign policy, uh, the end of Pax Americana is, of course, a crucial development for NATO uh, because what, what is NATO without the Americans? It looks like kicking an open door, but it, it, is still, it was always the case and it, and it is still the case. As long as Jim Mattis uh, is Secretary of Defense, uh, I, I have the impression uh, uh, that uh, things are, uh, are rather well in that regard. Uh, but he's one of the last men standing. Uh, having said that, uh, I don't envy uh, uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg. Uh, because when I look back to my own mandate, 2004-2009, uh, uh, that was, as you rightly said, to a large extent dominated by Afghanistan. Uh, which was new to NATO, uh, uh, which was complicated, which was complex. Uh, democracies are always short of breath, uh, so we left too early. Uh, NATO left too early, the coalition uh, left too early. But that's a fact of life because, um, thank heavens, all NATO nations have elections, so they're all short of breath because they're democracies and autocracies. Uh, if you ask me about the result, uh, I, I would say the jury's still out. What, what we found out... Uh, is that, uh, uh, as we found out in Iraq, that exporting democracy uh, in a nation like Afghanistan uh, is not that easy. We realized that uh, uh, it was from time to time more about land, about water, about poppy, about tribalism than it was about the Taliban. And I think that situation has not changed. Uh, I think the coalition and NATO have, has done a, a, a lot of good. There are still many schools functioning, but, 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 situation in Afghanistan is not improving. To look back critically uh, to my own mandate and, and to NATO mandate, the, the, the NATO situation then, uh, I, th I think we might have underestimated geopolitics. Uh, we might have underestimated Afghanistan in relationship to the main players around it. Uh, a look into history uh, uh, um, is, 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 uh, is interesting here. Uh, I mean China, I mean the Pakistani-India rivalry. Uh, is Pakistan part of the solution or part of the problem? That same question is extremely relevant as, as, as we speak. Uh, what about Iran? Anyway, I think, I think we are underestimated the, the geopolitical domain in Afghanistan. Uh, and when I look at NATO now, and that is, that is relevant given my remarks, I think, about Pax Americana, NATO is a political military alliance in that order and not the other way around. So NATO should be political, more political perhaps than it is at the moment, more political than it was uh, when I had the privilege to be, uh, to be Secretary General. What do I mean by that? I mean by that, that when we discuss uh, autonomous weapons, uh, weapon systems, AI, cyber, what have you, China is very busy in this regard. And China is molding the world according to its own values and its own rules. I think an organization like NATO, and that's relevant for the EU, by the way, as well, should on these issues have an intensive political dialogue with the Chinese. Before, because before you know, you've lost the value battle uh, uh, as the Chinese are molding the multilateral system according to their own values and their own rules. And let's not fool each other, Paul. Chinese values are not our values. I'm not, I'm not saying China is an enemy. I'm not even saying China is an opponent. China is a rival, and is a rival in many ways, and is also, was a rival in Afghanistan, and is also a rival on the topics we, 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 we discussed before. Uh, NATO is political. I, I, with much respect to the Defense Minister of Portugal, uh, 
rewriting a strategic concept is, is, is a huge exercise, and I'm putting it very mildly now. Uh, and you have to answer the question first, what's new? What is new? Uh, imagine uh, a nation invoking Article 4, Article 5 on the basis of a massive cyber attack. Uh, Article 5 was not written in the days of cyber, but whatever you write down on a piece of paper, when a nation invokes 4 and, and, and 5 after a cyber attack, there will always be the same kind of political debate. Is this attack... Justify, is this attack a justification for invoking Article 5? What, whatever, whatever you have on paper. So I, I agree with you, Minister, uh, that the NATO in 2018 uh, is, is different from the NATO even five, six, seven years ago. I, I, I take that point. If that should lead to a completely new document, I think, I think the Washington Treaty, when you read it, is rather much alive and, 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 and kicking. The world has changed, I agree. But do realize, ladies and gentlemen, that when you start uh, uh, rewriting a strategic concept, you, you, should, you should answer the question, uh, uh, what, what, what is new? I could leave it here, Paul, hoping that... Okay, well, I will, uh, there's plenty of questions for, uh, that, that, that arise out of all of this. Uh, before we... We're about to go to the floor. Uh, thanks for showing first interest. There's a lady here who will be the first questioner when we get there. But let me just ask you, uh, one of the things that came out of debating Security Plus was a, a, a big view that we should develop uh, European strategic autonomy. Now, European strategic autonomy uh, is a rather elastic term. Um, uh, in some places, it's a red rag to a bull. Um, so can I ask each of you very quickly um, what you understand by it and whether you think it's a good idea or whether you think it would be better to, to, to drop the phrase. Starting with you, Minister. Uh, as I said, uh, uh, I believe strongly that NATO is not understandable today without these recent developments on uh, a new defense policy in Europe. Uh, we could discuss very for a long time, what are the reasons that can explain this? I can propose two immediate reasons, two context uh, reasons. Uh, Brexit, uh, the idea of uh, that the burden sharing was for real, and the idea that if we had to pay the price, we had to work together in complementary and in complementarity and non-duplication with NATO. Uh, as you said very wisely. Uh, you can find in a room three persons speaking about strategic autonomy of the European Union, they can say totally different things. It's the same in NATO, too. Don't, don't, uh, <laughs> don't begin smiling. It's the same thing in NATO. Uh, when you speak about what is fit for purpose, it's the same thing we can. When you speak about what is the south flank, it's even worse. So this is my problem, uh, actually. If I hear friends speaking about strategic autonomy, I'm not totally sure that I can follow every conclusion of my uh, French friends. Yeah. And, uh, but if I speak with a German friend, I think maybe he's too uh, politically correct and I would prefer him to go a little bit further. What I take for sure is that whether we like it or not, I think this is a process ongoing and the process that in its... Uh, major aspects is a very positive one. Frank Dagheens. Well, I need, to, uh, I need to answer with a question. What is it? <laughs> uh, but it has been discussed not only in the European Union, but also in NATO, that Europe needs to uh, gather more, 
be more uh, clear, uh, point the direction. Well, I, I see a lot of initiatives. UK doing it, Germany doing it, French doing it, as you say. At the same time, we have the discussion around burden sharing, Europe against, uh, against uh, US. I think we see a lot of, of uh, initiatives and that this is a, a way of developing the, uh, the security uh, model, we, architecture we, we're working. Struggling. So better to stick to practical initiatives. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Benedetta. I will also dodge the defining what strategic autonomy means and instead just say that I, I think the idea of the European Union and, Europe, and European Union member states investing more in defense, it's, it's a high-time idea and mm. one that will only be received positively in the extent that I think it contributes to a fairer burden sharing. It contributes to sharing responsibility for our mutual security challenges. So in that sense, I think it's a welcome development. I also believe that if we think about European Union ability to have robust expeditionary operations or crisis management capabilities, I don't see why that wouldn't be a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't see why taking care of the, sec of the security needs uh, in the neighborhood, it's not a good idea. I would just, and it's not even a word of caution, I would say I believe that framing this in, a, in an either or, or yeah. in an antagonistic way to, the, to, to what we have, which is a strong transatlantic security alliance, uh, that has guaranteed peace and stability and has defended Europe for decades, I think that's the not helpful part. Hmm. So that's where I don't get into the definition, and as long as it's complementary and integrated and uh, aims to build synergies with what we have in NATO, I think this is a very welcome development. So, yeah, is it, is it about preparing for post-Pax Americana? It's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, like, it's like global Britain. I don't know what it means. <laughs> uh, and, and we should be a bit careful in, right. in, in all seriousness we should yeah. be a bit careful by, by spreading what I qualify as container messages yeah. uh, strategic autonomy uh, to me would be uh, Benedetta was saying it a moment ago uh, that in, in scenarios uh, where there is no uh, article 4 uh, article 5 mm. the European Union is capable of, of operating in the higher ends of the military spectrum projecting hard power yeah. Uh, and that is not, of course, in the conflict with, with, with Russia, or, or, but, but the European Union. That, that's what I would call strategic autonomy. But let's realize that after Brexit, uh, in NATO, I think about 80% of the funding will come from non-EU members. Uh, uh, and, and that after Brexit, uh, when I discuss and talk about projecting hard military power by the European Union, it is basically only France. Uh, plus uh, a, a number of others, including, including Germany. So that's why I made the point with Sir Julian this morning that it is of the utmost importance to keep the United Kingdom, one way or the other, linked to the European Union after Brexit in this domain. Because if you have to go into the Sahelian zone with European, uh, European forces, I, I would not be able to see how on earth we would be able to do that without the British participating. Thank you very much. Over to the floor. Madame, can you tell us who you are and... Uh, tell us to whom your question is addressed. Youngmi Kim, senior lecturer at University of Edinburgh, but formerly I was associate professor at Central European University. We face uh, various kind of crisis, security crisis, from cyber crisis or um, military security issues, plus humanity, human security. When it comes to human security, I am involved in three major security areas, something on 
peninsula, which is going quite well after the third summit in between North and South Korea. And the second one is Rohingya crisis in Myanmar. I was wondering why such a big organization like NATO or EU have been very quiet. So my question is what role would it be or should it be from the perspectives of uh, NATO or EU on human security? And the third one is, as I explained myself as an associate professor from CEU, um, gender studies has, not, has been illegalized in Hungary, and obviously this is related to human security, and I wonder what role NATO or EU should be on okay. this crisis. Thank you. Um, can I ask for who, some more questioners? Um, I'm going to address that question to uh, 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 Madame Berti. Uh, is, 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 Europe, uh, is NATO um, doing enough about um, human security, um, Asia? Uh, are we blind to Asia or, or not aware enough of uh, security in Asia? Uh, there was talk of the need for a, a strong uh, security dialogue with China. Uh, do we have such a thing? Or is such a thing in the works? Um, or, um, voila. Voila. Uh, I'll just start with the human security because that's something that's also very, very close to, to what I think we, we ought to do more and what I think we are really positioning ourselves to do more on. Uh, I think that goes back to one of the points that I was raising earlier, that when you think about stabilization and countering terrorism, there is an awareness that that's only one piece of the puzzle. And I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, that NATO has a role, and that role and that added value is in the security dimension. Uh, but that doesn't mean that we should be blinded to the fact that the only way to achieve sustainable peace is through uh, a multitude of tools that are political, social, economic. And, and the uh, added value that I think we have on the human security specifically has to do with uh, protection of civilians in conflict, which is something that NATO takes uh, very seriously in terms of developing policy standards, training uh, for our troops deployed or for, the or for the local armed forces we train. So there is a very strong component of protection protection on civilians. There's an equally strong component, especially in the past few years, on gender-based violence in conflict and its prevention. And I think these are efforts that perhaps are less visible uh, to the public, but they're definitely there. There is uh, a growing investment in, uh, in, in the protection of civilian, in the protection of civilian uh, area in the gender-based, in countering gender-based violence in conflict. And in, and in developing standards of training on protection of uh, children in armed conflict. So these are still in the security realm, but they're very tangible impact, I think, in the way we think about security and in our human security approach. So I think, of course, we should do more. It's always an area where everybody can and should do more from uh, the personal perspective, but I think we're doing a lot. And especially if we look at the past decades, there's been a great evolution in terms of awareness and engagement. Ms. Baker Janssen, you want to yeah, because that's a, that's a good question. When I, I entered the um, NATO parliamentarians in 2013, the autumn 2013, and I think one of the first meetings was in Las Vegas. And everyone in... Uh, I remember we were talking about uh, the South China Sea. Uh, there were peace in Europe. Everything was a nice weekend, though. Uh, but <laughs> it was an exotic approach. It was, it was. Uh, but my, my, point, winning, my, point is, my point is that in 2014 everything changed because the threat uh, returned to Europe and we need to, to, uh, to focus on, on NATO and the old mission. 
and, uh, and when that happens, we also are in danger of forgetting the, the 360, the abroad approach, and the other, other fields. And I think this is, this is an important topic to discuss, both in NATO, but also with the partners, because this, is, this isn't only a task for, for NATO, this is a task for NATO and the partners. Thank you. Minister, I'll come to you in a second. If I may take one uh, next question from the gentleman at the back there. I, Go ahead. i proceed. Okay. Yes. Pierre-Emmanuel Thoman, Eurocontinent, analyst in geopolitics. My question is about values, because we speak a lot about NATO should be more political organization, so about values, than a military. But NATO was created at a time of a Cold War where the divide was liberal or democracy against communism, capitalism against communism. But now we are in a different world. Paradigma has changed. Uh, we are more like in civilizational struggle between different centers of civilization. And what we call the West, there are four Romes in the West. Rome, Constantinople, Moscow, Washington. And the question is? Yes, the question is, can... NATO transformed itself to be more at the service of European civilization, which is, of course, from Lisbon to Vladivostok, because the real enemy is political Islam and what all people feel about security. Thank you. Okay. Um, Minister, uh, this is not the question you wanted to answer, but it's the question you've got. <laughs> you are not my friend. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. In answering, because uh, I'm sorry, but I don't feel that political Islam is my main concern. I think that uh, I can agree fully with you with the idea of common values, and that's why we insisted on a more political approach. I think that the, the biggest difficulties of uh, NATO, because we are speaking about NATO, is the, the, the fact that uh, we now consider new challenges on security, uh, but we have lost, in some way, the capacity of thinking that NATO should be or could be art power. And this is the, the, the ambiguity, the present ambiguity of NATO. NATO is more and more soft power, and the European Union is trying to be more and more art power. And when I see, when I compare Operation Sophia or Operation Sea Guardian, I can see no differences. Yeah. And... Uh, the, the only time that we had to face a challenge, uh, that, uh, an Article 5 challenge, we invented legally a solution because we were attacked by a, a transnational terrorist organization, but we responded in a very traditional way against a territorial unity. This was understandable then because we didn't know what we were facing, but we took too much time to have the capacity of understanding that we were in a definitely in a new world. But what is said is that we had to wait until 2014 and to see Daesh almost occupying in a few weeks important parts of Syria and of Iraq to understand that we, are, we were not doing our job well. And this is the main problem of NATO now. Uh, we have challenges and, tr and threats that and I fully agree uh, with you when you say that the difference between security and defense is no longer very easy to, to, to understand. But at the same time, I am afraid that our organization, and, and I strongly believe in NATO, 
is still working with very traditional approaches. It's uh, an organization of territorial states, political units, and we have, I believe it, more difficulties in understanding a non-state threat than, for instance, uh, the United Nations. It's very interesting. The United Nations are considered to be on a certain decline or facing very strong challenges, but I see in some way a more modern approach in certain peacekeeping operations, for instance, in Central African Republic, where Portugal is engaged in very difficult combat operations to protect persons, to protect children and women, we have a, a humanitarian approach and we are doing much more for human security, for peace in that uh, country so far away than sometimes I believe, uh, I'm not pessimistic, but sometimes I think that we should do more and understand more clearly in a more political way what we want NATO to be. Thank you. Clock is ticking. Madam, we've got two ladies. I'd like to take you your questions together, if I may, and then go back to the panelists for a final round. Please. So may I? Yeah. Um, hello, thank you for your, for your talk. And I'm Anna Telsch from Portugal. And I agree about the, the, the hard power and, and, the, and soft power. And I also believe that uh, from that... We, we will come up with a, a stronger NATO, uh, with a smart power uh, to to achieve uh, um, more more resilience and uh, and uh, development pr promotion. In, in that saying, um, the the most astute approach is the one that makes fighting unnecessary uh, from Sun Tzu's uh, strategy. Uh, I would like to know if deterrence also means that uh, resilience and development promotion will be in order for inside and outside of NATO territory. And uh, if NATO is, is prepared for the possibility of, uh, of um, uh, deterrence inside the member states because of the transnational actors, and increase social anxiety and, uh, and restlessness uh, in you. the member states. Thank you. Thank you. I'm going to give that question to Bernadetta, but first, uh, lady behind you. Yeah. Um, hi, my name is Sophie Verriter. I am a graduate student at the University of Oxford. Um, my question is um, regarding the fact that we mentioned that many people are not aware or do not realize the importance of, for instance, threats posed by Russia. However, as was mentioned as well, um, we know that this is crucial to trigger the member states' political will to deepen and, and, and review the cooperation on defense and security. So what can we do to make people more aware of these threats and shouldn't it be a priority for foreign and security policy? Thank right. you. Right. Thank you very much. Um, Benedict, would you like to ask, answer the first question? And maybe I'll put the second question to Yap and if either of the ministers would like to add something then. Certainly. Uh, very briefly, I think I would, uh, I would agree, and I, and I think that's what the alliance stands for. Its, it's, its main purpose is to prevent conflict and it to, to as, as just was said, our, our, our approach is about not, ha not getting there, but uh, promoting peace and ensuring that we don't get to conflict. So I, I would 
I don't think there's much to disagree with that. And in terms of what we're doing, I mean, of course, that's what deterrence it's all about, and that's what the main one of the main uh, we forget about one of the main achievements of the, the Cold War that we managed to end it with. Uh, w- while maintaining uh, decades of peace in Europe. Of course, uh, it's a much more complicated conversation, so I'll leave it at that. But today, the principles are very much the same. And I would say when we do training, training is about also prevention of conflict. It's about building capacity so that uh, we can, pre- so that local actors can be empowered to prevent an escalation and to deal with the local threat. So I think a lot of what we do is actually about preventing conflict uh, we may not talk about it that way but it, that is the that is the mission so yes full agreement thank you yeah i i, I think the answer is uh uh and here is uh, a a baby boomer generation representative speaking uh it, it it is getting your generation as much as we can into the debate uh, that's i think one of the reasons friends of europe is what it is and and and, and that we're sitting here uh, you are growing up in the, in the cyber generation. I grew up during the Cold War, uh, and it was all about nuclear weapons, about cruise missiles and Pershing. Nuclear weapons are still around, by the way. Uh, and the future of nuclear weapons uh, is, is, is a topic where your generation has never been actively involved in. We discussed AI and cyber and, and, and so on and so forth. That, that's, my, that's my first answer, so engaging and involving your generation as much as possible. And number two, and I refer back to the question uh, put by the lady in the Central European University, that's that we ask attention for our own core values. Uh, I don't need to mention Hungary, uh, uh, I don't need to mention the European Parliament, but that's what I mean. And that's, that's the European Union and NATO have in common. They are established to protect and defend those values. Uh, and then the EU, of course, has a wider-ranging toolbox than, than NATO. Na- NATO cannot be the world's policeman and go everywhere and, 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 and anywhere. Uh, but th- those would be two parts of my, of my answer. First, engage your generation, and, 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 and secondly, perhaps be a bit better aware uh, of the values we are supposed to defend, because that's why NATO came, came about in 1949, and that's, and that's what's, what, what, what's, of course, at the origin of the, of the European Union. And the Nie wieder Krieg, never war again on the European continent, when I, where I grew up with, is for your generation, again, entirely different. So that defense of the European Union is insufficient, sufficient for my generation, because I learned that from my parents. I was born in '48, but insufficient for your generation. It's quite a challenge, but Friends of Europe should, should and, and is actively involved, and that's why I'm so happily involved in Friends of Europe as well. As a, as, a, as a baby boomer, even. Thanks very much. Well, from, a, from an early baby boomer to a, a late baby boomer, um, <laughs> uh, uh, we, we were part of the population bulge, and in my case, that's uh, visible. Um, <laughs> thank you uh, to our panelists for a very rich discussion. Very hard to summarize it, but I think what you've, what you've heard this morning shows that there's a lot of thinking uh, creative thinking uh, within uh, NATO and within uh, national defense ministries uh, about uh, the range of future security threats as well as the, the conventional and classic type of security threat. Whether that requires uh, a new strategic doctrine, it certainly requires uh, new and nimble thinking, I think, and uh, everybody I heard this morning 
uh, uh, was committed to that. Uh, NATO remains, first and foremost, a hard security organizer. I remember Richard Nixon. I'm old enough to remember that Richard Nixon tried to sort of give uh, NATO a more cuddly, fuzzy edge by introducing an economic department to NATO and saying we should be dealing with economic security as well. Well, that didn't really catch on. Um, and I think that, you know, it, it's important that NATO uh, uh, sticks to largely to what it, what it does best, but works with other organizations whose specialty is those things. And the European Union, we've heard uh, uh, repeatedly, has that broad palette of development, nation-building, institution-building, uh, uh, humanitarian, uh, uh, um, diplomatic, and so on, uh, 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 tools in its toolbox. It, its military toolbox is still relatively uh, um, vacant, but uh, uh, something is slowly and gradually um, being put into that space. So uh, I would say beware of overselling the military toolbox before there's much in it. Uh, beware of, the, of, of, of big, big expressions, slogans, if you like, like, uh, like European strategic autonomy if they, if they don't have real content. And finally, the question mark over this new start for an old alliance has to be uh, the question that Yap mentioned, um, Pax Americana. Is Pax Americana still there? Um, uh, a lot of people said, look what we're doing, not, you know, not at the tweets. Um, and it's true that uh, both in the communique of the NATO summit and in what the U.S. has done in the last couple of years in Europe, there's a sign of more engagement, there's a sign of, uh, of more uh, uh, commitment. Uh, the tweets do not uh, lend huge ideological support, however, to that. And uh, they raise doubts, and if they raise doubts in the minds of Europeans, they're probably raising those same doubts in the minds of people who wish the Europeans no good. So... Uh, treating allies like allies will continue to be important, I think. Uh, on that note, you are all released. To, you can resume a normal activity, but please join me in thanking our panelists for their thoughts. <laughs>